John 11, 1 through 6, 20 through 27, 32 through 46, and lastly, 53. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to, to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The word of the Lord. Thanks. 
in the weeks leading up to Easter, we've been walking through uh, big questions, the big obstacles and objections that people have to faith in God and especially to faith in Jesus and Christianity. And uh, this week we get to a question. This is the question I saved for the last week before Easter because this is the big question. This is the mother of all questions. Uh, It's the question of evil and suffering. And I just want to tell you up front, we are not going to do justice to this question in half an hour. The question is, how can I believe in a God who allows so much evil and suffering in this world? If, if God um, wants to stop suffering but doesn't, then he's not a powerful God. But if he's able to stop the suffering um, and he doesn't, then he's not a good God. That is a powerful argument. In fact, uh, of all the arguments um, and objections against faith in God, uh, this is the one that comes up first for most people, and this is the one that we feel most personally. I mean, this is a visceral reaction. This is, this is the argument that we feel in our guts. Uh, for instance, Stephen Fry is a British comedian, and he's also an outspoken atheist. And uh, I was watching an interview with him on British TV a few years ago. And the very first question that the interview asked him was this. Remember, he's a, an outspoken atheist. So the interviewer says, Stephen Fry, suppose it's all true, and you walk up to the pearly gates and are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say? And this is what he said. I'd say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it uh, insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. You think about what Stephen Fry is saying, he's got some points. How can we believe in a God that allows so much evil and suffering in this world? And if you do believe in God, then the question is, how can you trust this God? Because when suffering hits, we all have the same question, right? Why? Why, God, why would you allow this suffering and this evil into my life and into this world? That's what Stephen Fry wants to know. That's what we want to know. This passage that we just read is one of many, many places in the Bible that deal with this question. And I want to look at it this morning under three headings. We're going to see the problem of suffering. We're going to see the reason for suffering. And lastly, we're going to see our response to suffering. All right? The problem, the reason, and our response to suffering, okay? First, we see the problem of suffering here. Now, what is our problem? We look at evil and suffering in the world, and we're flummoxed. We we, we don't know what to make of it. We say, God, if you really are a good God, if you really are a powerful God, then how can you allow such horrible, awful things in this world? Now, one of the things that's really amazing about the Bible is that it does not sidestep this question. Um, you know, and that should be an encouragement to us because if the presence of evil and suffering in this world really is an ironclad, rock-solid argument against the existence of God, then you would expect perhaps the Bible to shy away from this question, but it doesn't do that. Not only does the Bible not shy away from this question, it tackles it head on. 
And you see that in this passage. Um, It begins by telling us there was a man named Lazarus, and he was sick, so there's some suffering. Okay, what's God going to do about it? That's the question. We're set up for the story now. I don't know if you noticed this when it was being read, but look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It says that Jesus loved Lazarus. Therefore, okay, follow the train of thought here. What are you expecting on the other side of therefore? Jesus loved Lazarus. Therefore, we expect God to do something about it. What it says is Jesus loved Lazarus. Therefore, he let him die. We're almost tempted to say, okay, Lord, um, if that's how you love people, we could do with a little less of that kind of love. Thank you very much. This story does not shy away from the problem. In fact, this story shines a spotlight on it. It's almost like it's shoving this problem right in our face. That should be a clue for us, a big clue. A clue to what? Yes, the problem of evil and suffering is a huge problem for believing in God. But if you get rid of God, the problem of evil and suffering gets even bigger. Notice that both Mary and Martha, both of them bring um, their question to Jesus. And it's really, it's a complaint. They both ask the same identical question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both, they're both asking the why question. Why, Lord? Why would you let this happen? Do you realize how profound this is? Yeah, the presence of evil and suffering in the world is a big problem. But at least they're bringing their question to the right place, or rather to the right person. Because if there is no God, it's a meaningless question. If there is no God, if this world really is all there is, if this world is nothing more than a cosmic accident, and it's nothing more than the result of random, irrational forces, then, then this whole world and everything in it, all the violence, all the evil, all the suffering, all the disease and the war and the poverty, all of it is, is just nature being nature. It's perfectly natural. It's just survival of the fittest. It's Jurassic Park. Why would it bother us so much if that's the case? Here's the real problem with evil and suffering. If there is no God, there's no such thing as real evil. You can't look at bone cancer in children and burrowing insects and say it's wrong, not objectively wrong. You can say, I don't like it. You can say, I don't prefer it. But you can't say it's wrong. You can't say it's evil. And yet that's exactly what we do say. It's what Stephen Fry said, isn't it? He looks at bone cancer and burrowing insects, and he says it's utterly, utterly evil. Friends, if there is no God, that's the, that's the one thing we cannot say. If there is no God, there is no such thing as good or evil. Therefore, you can't use the presence of evil in the world as an objection against God. Because if there is no God, there is no evil to object to. So, for instance... Uh, Andrea Palpant Dilly wrote a, a memoir called Faith and Other Flat Tires. Um, and she talks about how when she was growing up, her parents were medical missionaries in Kenya. Um, so when she was a little girl, she had seen so much death and pain and suffering in her life that by the time she was a teenager, she had seriously begun to question uh, the goodness of God. And by the time she was in her 20s, she had rejected Christianity altogether. But then one night in her memoir, she's talking about how she was having a conversation with a young man um, 
and, and by the way, he had uh, pictures up in his apartment all over the place of starving babies uh, throughout the world. It really bothered him, these starving babies. So they're talking, and the young man was saying that he didn't believe that, that there was any such thing as objective morality, that there was any such thing as objective good and evil. He said, all morality is subjective. And before she realized what she was doing, Andrea Palpentdilly just started responding um, instinctively. And she said this, but if morals are totally subjective, then you can't say Hitler was wrong. You can't say there's anything unjust about letting babies starve. And you can't condemn evil. You have to consent to an objective moral standard up here. And when she said up here, she waved her arm in the air, drawing a horizontal line. And she says in her memoirs that when she did that, all of a sudden, that was the beginning of her return back to faith in God. And in an interview she gave later, here's how she described what happened. She says, when people ask me what drove me out of the doors of the church, and then what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. I left the church because I was mad at God about human suffering and injustice. And I came back to the church because of the same struggle. I realized that I couldn't even talk about justice without standing inside of a theistic framework. In a naturalistic worldview, an orphan in the slums of Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. We're all just animals in a godless world fighting for space and resources. The idea of justice doesn't really mean anything. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. Dear ones, listen, evil and suffering is a huge problem, but, but we don't solve the problem by getting rid of God. That just makes the problem worse. The intensity of our feelings about this, the outrage and the horror that, that we feel instinctively inside of us is actually one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God, not against him. That's our problem with suffering, and it leads to our next point. We've just seen the problem of suffering. We need also to look at the reason for suffering. And I think that as we do that, one thing that's helpful to do is to kind of pull this question apart into two questions. Uh, one question is, where do evil and suffering come from? The other question is, why does God allow it? Okay, first, wh wh where does evil and suffering actually come from? This poor uh, story, I mean, points us to the answer. Uh, one of the interesting things about this story is that when Jesus shows up, you know, we get to read and experience this story from a, the narrator's viewpoint. We know that when Jesus shows up, he knows exactly what he's about to do. You know, he arrives on the scene. Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha are devastated. Everyone in the village is, um, they're crying and they're weeping and they're grieving. But Jesus, Jesus knows that in just a few minutes, uh, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in, in just a handful of minutes, instead of weeping and mourning, everyone is going to be leaping for joy. They're going to be exclaiming to one another, wow, did you see that? And yet, look at verse 38. It says, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, Jesus is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. And as he walks up to the tomb, it says that he was deeply moved. Now, I want to encourage you about something. By and large, our English translations of the Bible are really, really good. But every once in a while, there's words that are just really hard to translate and do justice to the full um, depth of what the word actually expresses. And this word, deeply moved, is one of them. When it says that Jesus was deeply moved, that's a word that means literally bellowing with anger. 
It's a word that was used to refer to the snorting of horses' nostrils as they charged into battle. What this is saying is that Jesus is furious at death. He's enraged. I mean, have you ever been so angry that you're literally quaking? That's what's going on with Jesus here. He's not some patient, gentle physician who's about to cure a patient. He's a warrior who's, uh, who's entering into battle. His sword is drawn, and he's about to smite the enemy. Do you know why this is so significant for us? Because this is showing us that death is not part of God's original design for this world. This is pointing us actually back to the very beginning of the Bible, um, And the whole story of creation, it's showing us that death is an intruder in God's creation. Death is the ultimate enemy. Death is the ultimate manifestation of a world gone awry. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and that he called everything he had made very good. Not just good, very good. The world was in a state of blissful, harmonious perfection. Everything was one beautiful, glorious, um, perfectly woven tapestry. And yet into this perfect creation, uh, Genesis 3 happened. In Genesis 3, the first humans, instead of wanting to trust in God, they decided that they didn't want to trust God anymore, that they wanted to be their own lords and their own kings and queens of their lives. They fell, and when they fell, All of creation fell with them. The whole world, the whole fabric of creation began to unravel. It's like if you take a thread and you just start pulling on it, the whole fabric begins to unravel. That's what happened to the world. The world we live in is unraveled because of sin. So that everything we see in this world, all of the the hurricanes and the tsunamis and the um, earthquakes and the bone cancer and the burrowing insects and evil and suffering and and poverty and racism and war, even death itself, all of it is because of the unraveling effects of sin in this creation. And death is the ultimate manifestation of that. It's the ultimate evil. It's the ultimate intruder in the garden. Now, you may say, well, that's just a myth. But let me ask you this. What other worldview does as good a job of explaining how we actually feel about evil and suffering in this world? I mean, what are our other options? The naturalistic worldview, there is no God, this world is all there is, that worldview would say, well, look, um, death is just natural. It's just a natural part of the world. There's no use getting upset about it. In fact, many people try to say that, and, and it doesn't really work because that's not how we feel about death. What are other worldviews? The, uh, the Eastern worldview, uh, things like Hinduism or Buddhism, would say this physical world is an illusion, evil, suffering, and death is nothing more than an illusion. Death is really nothing more than a wave just kind of slipping back into the ocean. Nothing to be upset about. Friends, of all the worldviews in the world, um, none of them actually does justice to the way we feel about evil and suffering in this world. Only Christianity has has the power to actually do justice to the horror and the outrage that we experience when we encounter evil and suffering and death in this world. Because in every human being, there's a memory trace. Uh, Davis was talking about our seminary professors just a bit ago. There's another professor named Jaron Bars who talks about echoes of Eden. 
that in every human being, there's an echo of Eden. There's a memory trace reminding us, telling us, whispering to us that, that this world was designed for beauty and perfection and that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Evil is not the way it's supposed to be. We know that instinctively. We know that intuitively. This passage and many others in the Bible tell us that God is angry about that. He's angry at death. He's furious. He's enraged at death and evil and suffering. And he's determined to do something about it, to set it to right, and one day to heal the whole fabric of creation. But that just leads to the second question. You know, we just saw, okay, if that's where evil and suffering come from, then, then the next question, and really the harder question, is why does God allow it? That's the hard question. And you notice back in our story, that is the exact question that each one of these sisters brings to Jesus. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus, we told you that our brother was sick. We asked you to come do something about it. You didn't, and now he's dead. Why? Why would you let this happen? And that leads to our last point. We've seen our problem with suffering. We've seen the reason for suffering. But lastly, we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about our response to suffering. And as I mentioned just a bit ago, there's no way to do justice to this topic in such a short amount of time. But let me offer you just a a few thoughts uh, in our passage that help us think about how to respond to this suffering and how to respond to this question of why God actually allows evil and suffering in the world. Let's notice three things. First, we have to let God be God. We have to let God be God. In other words, um, you notice that these sisters give Jesus an identical question but Jesus does not give them an identical answer, does he? In fact, Jesus doesn't really answer their question at all. He doesn't give them any answer to the question, why? He never actually answers that question. That means, first of all, that God doesn't necessarily give us the answers that we want. God doesn't necessarily give us the answers that we want. And boy, we struggle with that, don't we? I mean, we want to understand why. We want to understand. In fact, many times the way we frame our objection to God is like this. We say, God, we can't understand why you would allow so much pointless evil in the world. We can't understand why you would allow so much pointless evil in the world. In other words, we can't see any good reason for the suffering. Therefore, we assume that no good reason exists. We assume too much. So, for instance, when I was a kid, a little kid, I um, asked my mom one day if I could ride my bike to the mall. And the mall was a number of miles away, um, several busy streets with lots of traffic. And, of course, my mom, like any good mother, said, no, you can't ride your bike to the mall. And I said, but why? And, and, you know, I still remember that moment because I was so angry and so frustrated with my mom. At that time, I couldn't understand why. And of course, there's no way that my mother could possibly have explained um, the reasons why to me in any way that I could have understood because I just didn't have the necessary life experience. Now listen, if a 40-year-old mother can have reasons that an 8-year-old child cannot understand, how much more do you think an infinite God could have reasons for suffering that us finite human beings cannot possibly understand? That means that just because we can't see a good reason for the suffering does not necessarily mean that no good reason can exist. I know we don't like that. I don't like it, but it's true. In fact, no one's put this better than Tim Keller 
Uh, the great writer and pastor in New York City, he says this in several places, books and sermons. I'm paraphrasing, but, but he says this all the time. He says, if you have a God who's big and powerful enough to be mad at for allowing suffering, right? Think about that. If you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to be mad at for allowing the suffering, then at the very same time, you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for that suffering that we can't understand. But you can't have it both ways. That means that as we enter into this question of why does God allow the evil, we have to enter it with humility. We have to let God be God. Now, if we just left it there, that would be cold comfort. It's true, but it's not enough. We need more. God gives us more. Second, we have to trust God with our questions. Not only do we let God be God, second, we have to trust God with our questions. He may not give us the answers that we want, but he always gives us the answers that we need. And the beautiful thing about it is that they're not just answers for our heads. The answers that God actually gives us are answers for our hearts. And that's where we really struggle with this anyway, isn't it? The, the real struggle with evil and suffering is in our hearts. It's experientially. So take a look at what Jesus says to Martha, the first sister that comes to him. She comes with her question, Lord, why would you let this happen? And it's really interesting, you know, the way this conversation plays out. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And, and Martha says, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection from the dead. It's almost like she goes into Sunday school mode. You know, as a little girl, she grew up being taught all these doctrines and all these things and all these teachings from the Bible. She just goes into Sunday school mode. I know that he will rise again in the last day. And it's really interesting because she's going through this doctrine. What doctrine is that? Um, you know, what, one of the great promises, maybe the great promise of the Bible, we were just talking about it, is that God has promised that one day he is going to renew the whole fabric of creation. That's what the resurrection of Jesus points to, is the ultimate resurrection of the whole world. Now think about this. Every single other religion in the world promises an escape from this world. An escape from this world. The Bible, of all the religions in the world, is the only thing that promises a renewal of this world. That one day God is going to renew not just our bodies, but this whole world, our loved ones, all of creation. Everything is going to be renewed and restored to a place of beauty and perfection and glory and flourishing and wholeness. It's not an escape from this world. It's a renewal of this world. Martha knows this. That's the doctrine that she grew up with. And so she starts reciting it. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But then Jesus says something that would have just blown her away. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just one day there will be a resurrection, but I am the resurrection. Do you realize what he's doing? Not just for her, but for you and for me. What do we need most in the midst of incredible suffering? Jesus is making this promise personal. Because what do we need most? When you go into really incredible suffering, does an abstract promise about the renewal of all things, does that help? Yeah, I mean, to, an, to a degree, it does. If Christianity is true that, that one day God is going to renew this world, he's going to renew the fabric of creation, that our bodies and this world and our loved ones and everything is going to be renewed again, yeah, that is an incredible promise. But Jesus gives us even more than an abstract promise. He makes the promise personal. Because the only thing that will really help you when you're going through incredible suffering is when God is not just a concept that you believe, but a person that you trust. 
what do you need in the midst of incredible suffering more than anything else? Jesus doesn't just give us a doctrine. He is the doctrine. He embodies the doctrine. This is doctrine with a name. This is doctrine with a face. He is the doctrine. Friends, suffering is a complex thing. There are multiple, multifaceted reasons that evil and suffering can exist in our lives and in this world. And in the midst of the suffering that's in our lives, there are multiple and multifaceted things and reasons that God could be doing in our lives in the midst of all our suffering. Multiple things that God could be doing. But there is one thing that God is always doing in the midst of every single one of our suffering. He is always, always drawing us into a deeper knowledge of himself and always, always wanting to bring us into a deeper relationship with himself. He's always doing that in the midst of all the other things that he may be doing with our suffering. He always wants to bring you into a deeper relationship with himself. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? So it's not just that, you know, we bring our why questions to God. It's not like we're just bringing them to some blind, impersonal force. We're bringing our questions to a personal Savior. He has a name. It's Jesus. And that brings us to the last question that we need to respond to. Because we've seen first, we have to let God be God. He's powerful enough to do something about our suffering, and he's powerful enough to have reasons for it we can't understand. We have to let God be God. Secondly, we have to trust God with our questions. We have to trust God with our questions, that it's not just an abstract concept that we believe, but a person that we trust with this. But in order to do that, lastly, we need to let God in our tears. We need to let God inside of our tears, because here's the real question. It's one thing to say we need to trust God. The question is how? How are we going to actually trust this God in the midst of such incredible pain, evil, and suffering? Well, look at what he does with Mary, the second sister. I mean, remember what we said just a moment ago. When Jesus shows up here, he knows exactly what he's going to do. In just a few moments, everybody's going to be leaping for joy. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So if that's the case, how much sense does it make for Jesus to come into this scene, to come into the wreckage of this grief and this mourning and this pain? How much sense does it come for him to come into this scene? And, and we would expect him to come in and say something like, hey, What's with all the crying? What's with all the weeping and mourning? Come on, guys. I'm about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Buck up. Get over it. There's, this is not a place for crying and mourning. He does not do that. When Mary comes to Jesus, instead of engaging her in a theological conversation about the reality of the resurrection, instead of doing that, Jesus just weeps with her. He doesn't say anything. He just breaks down and he weeps with her. Do you realize what he's doing for us? Dear ones, Christianity is the only religion that gives us not just a God who consoles us with a promise that he's going to heal the suffering, but a God who has actually entered into the suffering by taking our suffering upon himself. He doesn't just reach out his hands, you know, pat us on the head and say, there, there, it's going to be okay. He, not even does he just wipe away our tears. This is a God who weeps tears of his own. Because did you notice at the very end, what does it say? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing scene. And uh, he puts an end to all the tears. Everybody's like leaping for joy. But at the very end, it says, when the religious leaders saw what Jesus did, last verse, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I mean, do you, realize what this means. It means that Jesus knew that when he rose Lazarus from the dead, that he was virtually signing his own death certificate. 
that the only way to get Lazarus and you and me out of the tomb was for him to go into the tomb himself. You know, we live in a world that is ripped apart by sin. The whole fabric of creation is literally ripped apart by our sin, which means that the tragic irony of all our questions to God to do something about this world is this. How is God supposed to wipe out evil and sin and suffering and death without wiping us out? The answer is Jesus Christ was wiped out for us because Jesus Christ is the only God who himself asked why. We are not the only ones who ever asked the question, why? Why, God? Why would you let this happen? Jesus Christ on the cross said, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ is the only God who's asked the why question himself because Jesus Christ is the only God who's so committed to ending all evil, sin, suffering, and death that he would enter this earth and on the cross, he plunged himself into the evil and the suffering in order that he could pull us up out of it. Do you realize what this does for us? I mean, we want an answer to the question why, don't we? What, what we want is, is a full answer to the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? We may never get a full answer to that question. We may never get a full answer to all the reasons why, but when we look at Jesus on the cross, when we see the God of the universe entering into our suffering, entering into our tears, and taking all of that suffering and that tears and that evil and that death upon himself, when we see that, no, we may not know all the reasons why God allows suffering, but at least now we know what the reason is not. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's not doing something about it. And it is certainly not that he doesn't love us. The cross is proof of that. It's proof. Is that the answer that we want? Maybe not. But it's the answer that we need. How are you going to let God be God? How are you going to trust this God with your questions? And how are you going to let this God into your tears by seeing that this is the only God who has tears and suffering and wounds of his own. Edward Shalito was um, an English minister during World War I, or as they call it um, in the United Kingdom, the Great War. Uh, the World War I was, was a war in which modern technology had allowed human beings to introduce exponentially greater levels of evil and suffering into the world. They had, for the first time, things like um, tanks and machine guns and artillery and trench warfare. They had flamethrowers. They had poison gas. I mean, exponentially greater levels of evil and suffering were introduced into warfare because of modern technology. And Edward Shalita was this English minister who was contemplating all that. He was contemplating this incredible evil and suffering that was happening in this world as a result of this war. And as he was contemplating that, he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. And in this poem, he was comparing Jesus to all the other gods that are available for us. And in the very last verse, he says this, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. 
Friends, Jesus Christ is the only God who has wounds. He's the only God who has scars. Scars in his hands and his feet where they drove the nails. Scars in his brow where they crushed him with a crown of thorns. Scars in his side where they pierced him with a spear like a hunted animal. Jesus is the only God with wounds. He's the only God with scars of his own. The only God who knows what it's like to suffer is this amazing, beautiful God, this amazing, beautiful Jesus of the scars. Is that the answer that we want? Let me ask you a question. How important is it to have full understanding in order for us to be able to trust God? What's more important for a three-year-old, to understand her parent or to trust her parent? Of course we know the answer. Trusting God is far, far more important than understanding God. Look, I know maybe that's not the answer that we want, but friends, it is the answer that we need. It's the answer that our hearts need. Do you see this God suffering for you, dying for you, going into the tomb for you? Let this God be God. He's far more powerful than you can imagine. Trust this God with your questions. He wants to bring you into a deeper relationship with himself. And, and let this God into your tears. The only way you can trust this God is by seeing that this is the only God who has tears and wounds and scars of his own. Let's pray. Father, we um, so often, Lord, in our hearts, we just want to object. We want to complain because, because the reality of the pain and the evil and the suffering feels so real and so crushing, and, and we don't know what to do with it except to cry out why. And, and we thank you this morning that you're a God who's, who's big enough and secure enough to, to receive our complaints and our questions and our struggles. But even more than that, Lord, we praise you this morning that you're a God who's big enough and powerful enough and loving enough to actually do something about it, not just by reaching out and patting us on the head, but by actually entering into the evil and the suffering yourself, because that's exactly what you did on the cross. And we pray this morning that as we um, walk out of here back into the um, sufferings of our own lives, the sufferings of this world, as we um, enter into whatever size they may be, whether they're little or small or huge and great, Father, we pray that you would help us to take always with us into our sufferings the cross of Jesus Christ, to, to remember that we may not know all of the reasons why you allow it, but at least when we see Jesus on the cross, we know the reason that it's not. And we pray that that would be the answer that our hearts need. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.